Schlock Audio Tales. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every three steps. Made with green scaly fabric, soft plush uppers, foam footbeds, non-slip grips on soles, and three white claws on each foot. One size fits most up to women's ten and a half, men's nine. Footbed measures ten and a half. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads a story, either a chapter of a novel or a whole short story. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. Look for our podcast near the old wishing well in the Blasted Heath, wherever you find your podcasts. We suggest Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Find us on the web at pgttcm.com and at Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and Black Clock Audio Tales on YouTube. Welcome to Black Clock Audio Tales. Check out our new website over at www.pgttcm.com. Edited by Daniel Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. The Chamber, Oppressive Gloom, Despair. Welcome to Part 1, Folklore of Great Britain. Join us at the end of the month when we talk about the Great Old Ones. Chapter 10 of Walsh Fairy Tales Recording by James Lapine Walsh Fairy Tales by William Elliot Griffiths Chapter 10 The Maiden of the Green Forest Many a palace lies under the waves that wash the Comerick land, for the sea has swallowed up more than one village, and even cities. When Welsh fairies yield to their mortal lovers and consent to become their wives, it is always on some condition or promise. Sometimes there are several of these which the fairy ladies compel their mortal lovers to pledge them, before they agree to become wives. A prince named Benley of the Powys region found this out to his grief, for he always supposed that wives could be had simply for the asking. All that a man need to say to the girl whom he took a fancy was this, come along with me and be my bride. And then she would say, thank you, I'll come. And the two would trot off together. This was the man's notion. Now Benley was a wicked old fellow. He was already married, but wrinkles had gathered on his wife's face. She had a faded, washed-out look, and her hair was thinning out. She would never be young again, and he was tired of her. He wanted a mate with fresh, rosy cheeks and long, thick hair. He was quite ready to fall in love with such a maiden, whenever his eyes should light upon her. One day he went out hunting in the green forest. While he was waiting for a wild boar to rush out, there rode past him a young woman whose beauty was dizzying. He instantly fell in love with her. The next day, while on horseback, at the same opening in the forest, the same maiden reappeared, but it was only for a moment, and then she vanished. Again on the third day, the prince rode out to the appointed place, and again the vision of beauty was there. He rode up to her and begged her to come live with him at his palace. I'll come and be your wedded wife on three conditions. You must put away the wife you have now, you must permit me to leave you one night every seven, without following after or spying upon me, and you must not ask me where I go or what I do. Swear to me that you will do these three things. Then, 
if you keep your promises unbroken my beauty shall never change no not until the tall vegetable flag reeds wave and the long green rushes grow in your hall the prince of the powers was quite ready to swear this oath and he solemnly promised to observe the three conditions so that the maid of the green forest went to live with him but what of his old wife one asks ah he had no trouble from that quarter for when the newly wedded couple arrived at the castle she had already disappeared happy indeed were the long bright days with which the prince and his new bride spent together whether in the castle or outdoors riding on horseback or in hunting the deer every day her beauty seemed diviner and even more lovely he lavished various gifts upon her among others was a diadem of beryl and sapphire then he put on her finger a diamond ring worth what was a very great sum a king's ransom in the middle ages monarchs as well as nobles were taken prisoner in battle and large amounts of money had to be paid to get them back again so a king's ransom is what benley paid for his wife's diamond ring he loved her so dearly that he never suspected for a moment he would ever have any trouble in keeping his three promises but without variety life has no spice and monotony wearies the soul after nine years had passed and his wife absented herself every friday night he began to wonder why it could be his curiosity to know the reason for her going away so increased and so wore on him that he became both miserable in himself and irritable towards others everybody in the castle noticed the change in their master and grieved over it one night he invited a learned monk from the white monastery not far away to come and take dinner with him the table in the great banqueting hall was spread with the most delicious viands the lights were magnificent and the music gay but wyland the monk was a man of magic and could see through things he noticed some secret grief was preying upon the prince's mind he discerned that amidst all the splendor he benley the lord of the castle was the most miserable person within its walls. So Wyland went home, resolved to call again and find out what was the trouble. When they met some days later, Wyland's greeting was this. Christ save thee, Benley. What secret sorrow clouds thy brow? Why so gloomy? Benley at once burst out with the story of how he met the maid of the green forest and how she became his wife on three conditions. Think of it said benley groaning aloud when the owls cry and the crickets chirp my wife leaves my bed and until the day star appears i lie alone torn with curiosity to know where she is and what she is doing i fall again into a heavy sleep and do not awake until sunrise when i find her by my side again it is all such a mystery that the secret lies heavy on my soul despite all my wealth and my strong castle with feasting and music by night and hunting by day i am the most miserable man in the comic land no beggar is more wretched than i wyland the monk listened and his eyes glittered there came into his head the idea of enriching the monastery he saw his chance and improved it at once he could make money by solving the secret for a troubled soul prince benley said he if you bestow upon the monks of the white minster one-tenth of the flocks that feed within your domain and one-tenth of all that flows into the vaults of your palace 
and hand over the maiden of the green forest to me. I shall warrant your soul will be at peace, and your troubles end. To all this Prince Benley agreed, making a solemn promise. Then the monk Wyland took his book, leather-bound, and kept shut by means of metal clasps, and hid himself in the cranny of a rock near the giant's cave, from which there is entrance down into fairyland. He had not long to wait, for soon, with a crown on her head, a lady, royally arrayed, passed out of the silverly moonlight into the dark cave. It was none other than the maiden of the green forest. Now came a battle of magic and spells, as between the monk's own and those of the green forest maiden. He moved forward to the mouth of the cave, then summoning into his presence the spirits of the air and the cave. He informed them as to Benley's vow to enrich the monastery, and to deliver the green forest maiden to himself. Then, calling aloud, he said, Let her forever be as she appears now, and never leave my side. Bring her, before the break of day, to the cross near the town of the White Minster, and there I will wed her, and swear to make her my own. Then, by the powers of his magic, he made it impossible for any person or power to recall or hinder the operation of these words, leaving the cave's mouth in order to be at the cross before the day should dawn. The first thing he met was a hideous ogress, grinning and rolling her bleared red eyes at him. On her head seemed what was more like moss than hair. She stretched out a long bony finger at him. On it flashed a splendid diamond, which Benley had given his bride, the beautiful maid of the green forest. Take me to thy bosom, monk Wylan, she shrieked, laughing hideously and showing what looked like green snags in her mouth. For I am the wife you are sworn to wed. Thirty years ago I was Benley's blooming bride. When my beauty left me, his love flew out the window. Now I am a foul ogress, but magic makes me young again every seventh night. I promise that my beauty should last until the tall flag reeds and the long green rushes grow in his hall. Amazed by the story, Wyland drew his breath. And this promise I have kept. It is already fulfilled. Your spell and mine are both completed. Yours brought to him the peace of the dead. Mine made the rivers rush in. Now waters lap to and fro among the reeds and rushes that grow in the banqueting hall, which is now sunk deep below the earth. With the clash of our spells, no charm can redress our fate. Come then and take me as thy bride, for oath and spell have both decreed it as thy reward. As Benley's promise to you is fulfilled, for the waters flow in the palace vaults, the pike and the darefish feed there. So, caught in his own dark sword plot, the monk, who played conjurer, had become the victim of his own craft. They say that Wyland's cross still recalls the monk, while fishermen on the Welsh border can, on nights with smooth water, see towers and chimneys far below, sunk deep beneath the waves. Chapter 11 of Welsh Fairy Tales Welsh Fairy Tales by William Elliot Griffiths Chapter 11 The Treasure Stone of the Fairies The Griffiths are one of the largest of the Welsh tribes. Today it is said that in Britain, one man in every forty has this 
either as his first, middle, or last name. It means hero or brave man, and as far back as the ninth century, the word is found in the book of St. Chad. The monks, who derived nearly every name from the Latin, insisted that the word meant great faith. Another of the most common Welsh personal names was William, which, when that of a father's son, was written Williams, and was only the Latin for guild helm or golden helmet. Long ago, when London was a village, and Cardiff only a hamlet, there was a boy of this name who tended sheep on the hillsides. His father was a very hard-working farmer, who every year tried to coax to grow out of the stony ground some oats, barley, leeks, and cabbage. In the summer he worked hard, from the first croak of the raven to the last hoot of the owl, to provide food for his wife and baby daughter. When his boy was born, he took him to church to be christened Griffid, but everybody called him Gruff. In time, several little sisters came to keep the boy company. His mother always kept her cottage, which was painted pink, very neat and pretty, with vines covering the outside, while flowers bloomed indoors. These were set in pots and on shelves near the lattice windows. They seemed to grow finely because so good a woman loved them. The copper door sill was bright, and the broad borders on the clay floor along the walls were always fresh with whitewash. The pewter dishes on the sideboard shone as if they were moons, and the china cats on the mantelpiece in the silver luster reflected both sun and candlelight. Daddy often declared he could use these polished metal plates for a mirror when he shaved his face. Puss, the pet, was always happy purring away on the hearth, as the kettle boiled to make the flummery of sour oat jelly which Daddy loved so well. Mother Griffith was always so neat with her black and white striped apron, her high peaked hat with its scalp lace and quilled fastening around her chin, her little short shawl with its pointed long tips tied in a bow, and her bright red plaid petticoat folded back from her frock. Her snowy white rolling collar and neckcloth knotted at the top and fringed at the ends added fine touches to her picturesque costume. In fact, young Griffith was proud of his mother, and he loved her dearly. He thought no woman could be quite as sweet as she was. Once, at the end of the day, on coming back home from the hills, the boy met some lovely children. They were dressed in a very fine clothes and had elegant manners. They came up, smiled, and invited him to play with them. He joined in their sports and was too much interested to take note of time. He kept on playing with them until it was pitch dark. Among other games which he enjoyed had been that of the king and his counting house, counting out his money, and the queen in her kitchen eating bread and honey, and the girl hanging out clothes, and the saucy blackbird that snipped off her nose. In playing these, the children had aprons full of what seemed to be real coins, the size of crowns or five shilling pieces, each worth a dollar. These had head and tail, besides letters on them, and the boy supposed they were real. But when he showed these to his mother, she saw at once from their lightness, and because they were so easily bent that they were only paper and not silver. She asked her boy where he had got them. He told her what a nice time he had enjoyed. Then she knew that these, his playmates, were fairy children. 
fearing that some evil might come of this, she charged him, her only son, never to go out again alone on the mountain. She mistrusted that no good would come of the making of such strange children his companion. But the lad was so fond of play, that one day, tired of seeing nothing but fire and garden, while his sisters liked to play girls' games more than those which boys cared most for, and the hills seeming to beckon to him to come to them, he disobeyed and slept out and off to the mountains. He was soon missed, and a search was made for him. Yet no one had seen or heard of him, though inquiries were made on every road, in every village, and at the fairs and markets in the neighborhood. Two whole years passed by without trace of the boy. But early, one morning, on the twenty-fifth month, before breakfast, his mother, on opening the door, found him sitting on the steps, with a bundle under his arm, but dressed in the same clothes, and not looking a day older, or in any way different from the very hour he disappeared. Why, my dear boy, where have you been all these months, which have now run into the third year? So long a time that they have seemed to me like the ages. Why, mother dear, how strange you talk. I left here yesterday to go out and to play with the children on the hills, and we have had a lovely time. See what pretty clothes they have given me for a present? Then he opened his bundle. But when she tore open the package, the mother was all the more sure that she was right, and that her fears had been justified. In it she found only a dress of white paper. Examining it carefully, she could see neither seam nor stitches. She threw it in the fire, and again warned her son against the fairy children. But pretty soon, after a great calamity had come upon them, both father and mother changed their mind about the fairies. They had put all their savings into the venture of a ship, which had for a long time made trading voyages from Cardiff. Every year it came back bringing great profit to the owners and shareholders. In this way, Daddy was able to eke out his income and keep himself, his wife and daughters, comfortably clothed, while all the time the table was well supplied with good food. Nor did they ever turn from their door anyone who asked for bread and cheese. But in the same month the boys returned, bad news came that the good ship had gone down in the storm. All aboard had perished, and the cargo was totally lost in the deep sea, far from land. In fact, no word except that of the dire disaster had come to hand. Now it was tradition, as old as the days of King Arthur, that on a certain hill a great boulder could be seen which was quite different from any other kind of rock to be found within miles. It was partially embedded in the earth, and beneath it lay a great, yes, an untold treasure. The grass grew luxuriantly around this stone, and the sheep loved to rest at noon in its shadow. Many men tried to lift or to pry it up, but in vain. Tradition, unaltered and unbroken for centuries, was to the effect that none but a very good man could ever budge the stone. Any and all unworthy men might dig or pull or pry until doomsday, but in vain. To the right one came, the treasure was safe as if in heaven. But the boy's father and mother were now very poor, and his sisters, now grown up, wanted pretty clothes so badly that the lad hoped he or his father might be the deserving one. 
he would help him win the treasure, for he felt sure that his parent would share his gains with all his friends. Though his neighbors were not told of the generous intentions credited to the boy's father by his loving son, they all came with horses, ropes, crowbars, and tackle to help in the enterprise. Yet after many a long day's toil between the sun's rising and setting, their end was failure. Every day, when darkness came on, the stone lay there still, as hard and fast as ever, so they gave up the task. On the final night, the lad saw the father and mother, who were great lovers, were holding each other's hands while their tears flowed together, and they were praying for patience. Seeing this, before he fell asleep, the boy resolved that on the morrow he would go up to the mountains and talk to his fairy friends about the matter. So in the early morning he hurried to the hilltops, going into one of the caves, met the fairies and told them his troubles. Then he asked them to give them some of their money. Not this time, but something better. Under the great rock there are treasures waiting for you. Oh, don't send me there, for all the men and horses of our parish, after working a week, had been unable to budge the stone. We know that, answered the principal fairy, but do not try to move it. Then you will see what is certain to happen. Going home to tell what he heard, his parents had a hearty laugh at the idea of a boy succeeding where men, with a united strength of many horses and oxen, had failed. Yet, after brooding a while, they were so dejected that anything seemed reasonable. So they said, Go ahead and try it. Returning to the mountain, the fairies, in a band, went with him to the great rock. One touch of his hand, and the mighty boulder trembled like an aspen leaf in the breeze. A shove, and the rock rolled down from the hill and crashed in the valley below. There, underneath, were little heaps of gold and silver, which the boy carried home to his parents, who became the richest people in the country round about. End of chapter. This recording is in the public domain.